The Bible reading is taken from Colossians um, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Um, and this can be found, as you can see, on page 1016 um, in the Church Bibles. These are verses well worth memorising, <laughs> especially these first four verses. So chapter 3 of Colossians. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to one another, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creation, uh, creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we all love a good transformation story, don't we? You know, the kind of shows you watch of someone who's maybe morbidly obese, never left the house, eating sticks of butter, and yet they get the motivation to hop on the treadmill and they shed the kilos. Or the transformation story of maybe a teenager from a disadvantaged background, all odds against them, and yet they persevere at a sport and they make it, make it big. Or the, the dad who has terrible fashion sense, thinks socks and crocs are a good look, you know, just wears the one colour all the way and through a bit of a makeover, eh, it looks not too bad. Transformation stories like that, they sort of motivate us, inspire us, because they give us hope maybe we can change in our life. Colossians 3 is a transformation story. It's every Christian's transformation story. Now, at first it has the appearance of just any other transformation story. You know, there's the, the goal, 
what you're working towards, the actions, the, the perseverance, and then the end result. But it is radically different. Because what is being transformed is not out the outside, but it is the inside. Everything about you. The transformation to make you perfect. A moral cleanse, right in every way. That's different. So let's have a look at it. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, starts us with the goal. What's the goal of the change? Because it's important to know what is the goal. Whenever you sit down with, say, a fitness coach and they say, what's your goal? And you say, my goal is to be Chris Hemsworth. You know, that, that's my aspiration, an eight-pack. Or we are maybe a marriage counselor, what's your goal? We want to be 50 years married and still loving each other. Well, what's your goal? You know, what what's, what's, do you want to see happen? Colossians 3 begins with the goal. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, at first, this passage is telling us some things that you and I might not automatically resonate with, right? You've been raised with Christ. You died. Your life is hidden. Really? I mean, I haven't died, have you? I mean, I've risen. My life's hidden. I mean, I can see it. Can you see me? I can see you. And this is talking about an event that happened 2,000 years ago. I mean, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important moment in our history. But I wasn't there. Were you? Little words, as we've seen in Colossians, make a big difference. And you'll notice in those four verses that phrase, with Christ, with Christ. Elsewhere in Colossians, it's in Christ, in Christ. Verse 4 says, when Christ, who is your life. See, when someone becomes a Christian, you are united to Jesus Christ. Like a marriage, two should become one. You are united to Jesus Christ. And though you and I were not there 2,000 years ago, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are united to Jesus in such a way that as if we were, where his death becomes our death, his resurrection becomes our resurrection. It's like a baby in the womb of a mother. If the mother decides to go to the top of the harbour bridge, the baby goes with it. If the mother decides to go to the harbour tunnel all the way to the bottom of the sea, the baby is there. No matter where the mum is, the baby is united to her. She goes, the baby goes wherever the mum goes. And so it is with Christ. Where he goes, we go. His life becomes our life. And when Jesus died on that cross, it was a decisive end to his life. And because we were united to him, it was a decisive end to our old life. Philip Riken says, there are four things that were nailed to the cross. One was the sign that said, King of the Jews. The second was Jesus Christ, nailed there. The third was our sins, nailed them to the cross, forgiven all of them. And the third, a fourth was every Christian. Because as it says, our old self was crucified with him. But it's not only his death. Have a look. Verse 1 says, you were raised with Christ. See, when Jesus rose from the guest, his new life began, and so too for us. 
And as we trust in Jesus, right, at that moment, we are raised with him so much so that your new life, your new eternal life begins from that moment where your death, whenever that may be, is just a bump in the road, just a small inconvenience because your new life begins because you're united to Christ. See, that moment in history when Jesus died and rose again, it's not just the moment, but it's your moment and you're united to it. I tell you this because whenever you're making a goal, right, the reality is you don't know whether you're going to achieve that goal. You don't know whether you have enough perseverance, endurance, money, whatever it might be. You sort of set a goal, but you don't know whether you're going to make it. But when it comes to Christianity, it's not a guess. It's not a, I hope I make it. Because the power is not within. The power is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you're united to him. Because you notice in these verses, Jesus does it all. He's the one who died. He's the one who rose. He's the one who'll come back. And we're caught up in that. Notice all we do is what? Set your hearts on things above. Set your mind on things above. A couple of years ago, well, more than a couple of years ago, there was a popular idea called The Secret, which is made famous by Oprah, where you visualize what you wanted. You thought about it a lot and you pretended as if you actually had it so that you would get what you wanted. So, for example, I want a Maserati. I want a Maserati. I own a Maserati. I, James, am a Maserati owner. It's sort of that idea, you sort of, visualize what you want again and again. But here's the problem. There's many problems with it, right? But one of the problems is you don't know whether it's going to happen, right? You can think about it all day long. You can play make-believe all day long, but you don't know you're going to get a Maserati or not. But Paul wants us to visualize. Visualize what is certain and doesn't depend on you. Visualize what is guaranteed. Because have a look, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That the complete transformation of your life is guaranteed. You don't have to wonder, oh, will the goal be achieved? Will it happen? It will happen when Jesus returns. That every single one of your desires will be pure. Every one of your thoughts wholesome. Every one of your desires, right. And when that happens, you'll be more glorious than a thousand sunsets. It's not easy to grasp the enormity of this, I'll admit. This is big. And so we tend to not set our things on above, things above, but things below. Because sometimes it is quite mind-boggling. But also, too, as it says there, our life is hidden with Christ. Our identity is certain. We're united to Christ. Perfection is coming. But for the moment, our life is hidden. We can't see who we truly are. So we live in this tension, this now but not yet kind of tension. So how, do we, how does this hidden reality that those of us in Christ have affect the here and now? How do we experience the, the power of the cross and the resurrection in our life. Well, Paul goes on 
spell out some actions, verses 5 to 7. Before we look at that, I want to draw your attention to something which I don't normally do, and that is the heading that you'll find just above chapter 3 in your Bibles. Now, these headings have been added in by editors. They're not part of the original text. They're there to guide you, just like chapters and verses, help you as you read the Bible day by day. But have a look at the title for chapter 3. It says, Living as Those Made Alive in Christ. Now, it's interesting. The 1984 translation of the NIV had this title for the same chapter, Rules for Christian Living. Very different, aren't they? Living as those made alive for Christ. And in the 80s, rules for Christian living. Which is more correct? I mean, one is a passive view of change, isn't it? Live in light, motivated by what Jesus has done. The other is a more active view of change. You know, God has his commandments to do what he says. It's more right. Now, you and I tend to gravitate to one or the other. And as preachers, we tend to gravitate too. But both are correct. Both are needed. And Paul highlights both. Because verse 4 begins with a big therefore, in light of who we are united to Christ, what does he say? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Your earthly nature, your feelings, your desires, your actions that are sinful, that are not who you are. The old self has died. And the power that comes because of Jesus Christ in you, that power of the death and resurrection of Jesus even impacts your sex life. Because have a look what he spells out. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul's saying that everything from sexual immorality, which is any sexual experience outside a married relationship between a man and a woman. Impurity, this is sexual misbehavior, whether it's prostitution or pornography. This is lust, sexual thoughts, the undressing erotically of someone. Evil desires, probably alluding to sexual desire that has harmful or abusive actions in it. And then there's greed, which is not here really to do with money. It's more that covetedness, those who are married looking at those who are not and wanting them beside your spouse. This list is all-inclusive, and most of us in the room are guilty of at least one. Paul says, put to death. Not change slightly or make a few alterations, but put to death. Now, why? It doesn't list the things we normally expect him to list. He says, put it to death because they're idolatry. This may surprise you, but God invented sex. It was his idea from the beginning. Often we know God invented the sun and the trees, but sex? He invented the orgasm. It was his idea. Now, I tell you that because sex is a purposeful gift from God between a man and a woman in a lifelong marriage. That was his intention from the beginning. It wasn't a shock when Adam and Eve first had sex, right? What's going on? It was his idea, right? But we take his gift and we say, yeah, God, I'm going to do what I want. We ignore the terms and conditions in a thousand ways. 
Now, we generally don't do that with anyone else, right? Imagine if you're talking to, say, Steve Jobs, hypothetically. He's talking to you about the iPhone, about what it's there for. He'd say, oh, Steve, I know what it's for. Makes a great doorstop, this iPhone. Look, I mean, you wouldn't do that. It's ridiculous. But we do that when it comes to God, and we know best. But idolatry is more than that, right? It is taking what God has made and devoting our whole life to it, where we find our identity, our purpose, our satisfaction, our meaning from it, and saying, I don't need you, God. I have this which you have made. Rather than worshiping the creator, we worship the creation. That is idolatry. And we as a general say, well, I'm free to do what I want as long as I'm not hurting anyone. But the reality is we are hurting God. Because we say, well, it's my body. It's my life, my choice. I'll do what I want. But in reality, God's given you that body. He's given you that life. He's given you every good thing. And we say, stuff you. I'll do what I want. Is it any wonder why Paul adds that verse, verse 6? See what it says? Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, some of us say fear should be a, not be a motivator for change, right? But Paul doesn't think so. And most of the reasons why you change is because of fear. I mean, why is it you don't pick up your phone while driving? Because you know the cameras are on, the fines are great, and the points will go. Why is it you don't pick up a cigarette? Because you see on the package what happens. When there are consequences, we change. And we are tenants in God's house. And we have taken all sorts of things, sex being one, and we said, we'll do what we want. But the owner is coming back. And if we experience just the taste of God's wrath, it would be too much. But notice it doesn't say the wrath of God is coming on you, Church of Colossians. Why? The wrath of God is coming, but not on them. Why? Were they sexually pure? They'd done nothing wrong? No, no, no. Have a look at verse 7. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Paul is talking to the Church of Colossians which were engaging in all sorts of sexual activities, some that would make you blush. They're saying, that's not them anymore. They knew that God was angry for what they'd done. But they knew Jesus was put to death for their sin, forgiven them, washed them whiter than snow. And so they sought to put to death their sin. Brothers and sisters, Christians throughout the ages have engaged in all sorts of sexual activities. But what marks us out is verse 7, we used to walk in these ways, but no more. We are seeking to put to death our old self, and that includes our sexual sins. Is it easy? No. Is it convenient? Holiness rarely is. So let me ask you, what area of sexual sin with a what you view, what you think, or what you do, do you need to kill, put to death? Because often we say, oh, no to sin, but we get its number because I'm going to call you again. What do you need to put to death, fueled by the power of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection that is in you? Because our earthly nature says, that's ah, too hard. I can't help it, I'm a victim. 
our heavenly nature says that there is nothing that God expects you to do that you cannot do. Our earthly nature says, I can't live without. Our heavenly nature says, no, no, God made you for him, not sex. Our earthly nature says, no, I'd be to be true to myself. But our heavenly nature says, you need to be true to Christ because that is who you are. Now, often when it comes to this topic, Christians get labelled as judgmental and intolerant and all sorts of things. But as verse 11 shows us, it is but the opposite. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That Christians have always come from different backgrounds, whether that's race, religious performance, education, social status, and indeed sexual past. And that's why I love the Lord's Supper, right? When we take the Lord's Supper together and share the cup and share the bread, obviously it's a bit different now with coronavirus, etc., but when we normally share it, right, we come together as people with various sexual pasts. We come together to remember what Jesus Christ has done, that his body was broken, his blood was shed for us, to forgive us. And as we share in this meal together, as a people in the past have committed adultery, visited prostitutes, viewed things online we shouldn't, engaged in premarital sex, or there's others who think they're better than the rest of us. We come together as God's people, all forgiven, all united by Christ, putting off our old self, putting on the new, because Christ is all and is in all of you. You know, when there's ever a transformation happens on a movie or a moment when someone changes, how, do they, how does it always happen? By a musical montage. You know, that's sort of they put on a Stevie Wonder hit. Dun, da, dun, for once in my life. And then boom, there's a completely different person. Happens in about three minutes. Now we know, ah, oh, that's a movie. But sometimes we sort of think that will happen in our life change. Why isn't it happening quicker? Paul does not want us to be misinformed that the change, the day-to-day change is quick or easy. We are all works in progress, day by day, putting off the old, putting on the new. And Paul, in the final bit of this section, brings up one more topic, speaking. Have a look at verse 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. See, the power of death and resurrection that you are united to has power over even what comes out of your mouth. And the word there is... is Rid, kind of like put to death, rid, very active word. I mean, we developed a product out of it, the repel mosquitoes. Rid, right? 
When it comes out of your mouth, Paul is saying, rid yourself of anger and rage. Is that either whether it's passive aggressive, you know, sort of crush people with your silence or your sarcasm, or that active aggressive where you crush people with your words and your temper. Rid yourself of malice and slander. This is hurtful words, whether face-to-face or Facebook or email. You're a disappointment. You're a fat cow. You're ugly. You're a waste of space. Rid yourself of filthy language, crude joking, racist comments, swearing. Lies. Rid yourself of lies, whether they're small ones because you want people to think well of you, or big ones, rid yourself of lies. Why? Because you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which has been renewed in the image, in the knowledge of the image of its creator. See, when you lie, when you get angry, when you filthy language comes from your lips, brothers and sisters, Paul is saying, rid yourself of it because that's not the real you. It's like a prisoner who's been freed from prison but decides to still walk around in their prison clothes. You're free. That's not the real you anymore. And when we sin, it's not the real us anymore. Now, notice you can't be passive in this. He's using this clothing language, put off, put on. When you got dressed this morning, you didn't look at your clothes and think positively, get changed, get changed, get changed, and somehow it happened, right? No, Got out of your pyjamas, put on your new clothes, and you do that every day, I presume, because you're clothed, (laughs) right? You just do it every day, put off, put on. When it comes to the words that come out of your mouth, you don't just, oh, hear them, think positively, hope they go away. No, it takes effort, perseverance. For me personally, right, when I look at this list, the thing that stands out for me, the thing that gets me is lying that over the years I've had to battle with telling the truth because I'm a child of God and God is the father of, li- a father of truth and Satan is the father of lies. And so there's been times where I've made up things where I've had to go to people and say, actually, that what I said is not true and it was embarrassing. But I've had to each day, day by day, think, what did I said? Was that truthful or was that made up? I look at my dad, right, who battles with anger. He's quite public about this. And seeing him, you know, flare up at all sorts of things and yet see him put off the old, put on the new as he apologises without excuse for losing his temper and getting help and seeking to grow and being more self-controlled. That day by day, hour by hour, putting off the old, putting on the new. Is it tough? Yep. Feel like you want to give up sometimes? Absolutely. But progress is being made. And friends, you and I have all sorts of projects in our life. DIY projects around the house. Improve our diet, improve our fitness. But the project that you were saved for was to transform your character, to be sanctified in every way. That is your project in life. But often, because we live with ourselves, we don't see that progress. 
got three kids, and I don't know, notice them growing up, my three kids. But others who haven't seen them in a while come back, oh, look, they're so big, they've grown, right? And often when it comes to you, you won't see the progress that you've made. And so that's why we need each other. That's why you need church, is to encourage one another, say, brother, sister, you have grown so much from then to now, to highlight things that we may not otherwise see. My second-year-old daughter, Grace, watched the Shrek movies in reverse order. She's only three, so she's just watching them. So she watched Shrek 4, Shrek 3, Shrek 2, and then Shrek 1. Now, up until Shrek 2, all she knew, Princess Fiona, was her as an ogre, green. So when she came to watching Shrek 1, the whole film, she's like, where's Princess Fiona? Where's Fiona? I say, well, that's Fiona. That, that's not Fiona. She's, she's not green. I was like, no, no. Well, she transforms it. Anyway, trying to discuss with the three-year-olds. Very impossible. I said, just wait till the end of the film. But it was just, she couldn't recognize. That's not Princess Fiona. Princess Fiona's green. She's an ogre. And it got me thinking. When people look at us, they should see us becoming unrecognizable. As we change as the power of Christ in us shapes us and moulds us in all sorts of ways. And people say, is that really you? Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is in the business of transformation. And the change begins now. And one day, it will be complete. Whenever they end the series... TV show, there's that grand finale. You know, the, the biggest loser with revealed all the weight they've lost, that broken down house and they've renovated. <gasps> wow. That is a taste of what's coming your way. Because when Christ returns, there the transformation, you, will be complete. This is what's going to happen when Jesus returns and that resurrected body you get. When you open your mouth, you will only say positive things. When you're opening your mouth, you will never, ever lie. When you see someone you're attracted to, you will only have pure thoughts all the time. When you're in a frustrating situation, you will not get angry. You will be self-controlled all the time. When you see someone different from you, you will only have positive things to say about them. You will be perfect in every way, thought, word, and deed. And I know it is hard to believe because we're so used to what we're used to the earthly nature, but the heavenly nature is coming and you will be completely perfect in every way. We will never have to change again. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory and you will be sparkling, radiant, perfect in every way. And this type of transformation, you have to admit, only Jesus can bring it. There's no book, pill, or course that can bring about a change like this. 
And I'm aware that some of you in this room, you don't have this transformation, you don't have this future, this hope, but you want it. And you may be sitting here today or the last couple of Sundays and realised there's a problem, and it's me. I'm a sinner, and I've offended God, and I need a saviour. And Christ is that saviour. In Romans it says, anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you might be in a situation moment right now where you want to call on the name of the Lord and ask him to save you. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now, this Sunday. Where I'm going to pray a prayer and I'm going to pray it line by line where you can repeat each sentence in the quietness of your own heart, to God and make it your own. It's a simple prayer, but it basically says, Dear God, I'm sorry for what I've done. Thank you that you forgive me, and please help me to live for you. If this is you, then pray this prayer with me. Let's all close our eyes. Dear God, sorry that I have sinned against you. and rejected you as king of my life. Thank you that Jesus died a death I deserved on the cross, taking my sin and offering me a new start with you. Please forgive me and help me to live from this day forward with Jesus as my saviour, my Lord and my King. Amen. Can I just say, if you prayed that prayer, if you gave your life to Jesus, if you called on the name of the Lord, then in that moment, you were united to the most important moment ever, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we, here at 5.30, are ecstatic that you've made that call. So much so, we're going to give you a round of applause right now for making that call. Because there is nothing better than what you've just done. And the verse 4 is your verse. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory.